We are in a series called Love Revolution, and this is the second part. We started last week. All of John's writing is crammed into just a few years at the end of his life. Thus far, we haven't heard anything from him up until now. There isn't one of John's sermons recorded anywhere in the New Testament. Peter and Paul have done most of the preaching. Paul has, of course, done most of the writing, and uh, now they're gone. They were martyred three decades earlier, along with Matthew and Mark and Luke and James and Jude, and that left John as the last man standing, the sole surviving apostle of the first century, and it's been that way for the last 30 years of his life. And now John just feels like somebody has to say something because the truth is being attacked, even by those who call themselves Christians. And so the the one known as the apostle of love, he picks up his pen to write a gospel, a vision, you know it as the book of Revelation, and three letters. But it's not what you might think, this love that John writes about. This is not a love that takes you down the road of tolerance, but a love that takes you down the road of truth. And I'll say it again, telling the truth is the most loving thing anyone could ever do for you. Now, John's letters are not just about God's love toward us. That's what everybody likes to talk about. But these letters are also about our love toward God. It's a reciprocal love. It's a love that turns around and goes back to God. It's a love revolution. So John begins in chapter two with this thought. How do you know that you know Jesus? How do you know? Is it because you acknowledged him as your God or you believed in him as your savior or because you asked him into your heart as your Lord? How do you know? Is it because you obeyed the gospel message and you were born again many years ago? Those are all wonderful things, but how do you know that you know God? What is the evidence today that you know God? Is it just a feeling or a belief or a sincere hope in your heart? What is it? How do you know today that you know God? Well, John has a ready answer. And hereby do we know that we know him. John jumps into the fray and he said, here's how we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, that's how we know that we know God. He that says, I know God and keeps not his commandments, he's a liar. That's from the apostle of love. He's a liar and the truth is not in him. You see, when he defines a relationship with God, the apostle of love, John, he refuses to express it in the nebulous, vague terms of feelings. Instead, John gets very specific. If you serve Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you know Jesus, it will change your life in such a way that you will now keep his commandments. Remember that John was in Jesus' inner circle and John John had heard Jesus repeat this and express this 
all throughout his earthly ministry. Sometimes Jesus even expressed it with a little bit of frustration. He said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then when he got frustrated one day, Jesus actually said this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't even do the things that I say? It's invisible in the English language, but as we read these verses, John uses the word know. It's the Greek word genosko. And he uses the word know repeatedly for a reason. Because one of the main enemies of the apostolic church at the end of the first century was a group called the Gnostics, the knowing ones, the enlightened ones, genosis, uh, genosko, uh, knowledge, Gnostic the knowledgeable ones, the enlightened ones. That's what they called themselves. Now they would eventually, a couple centuries later, they would be denounced as heretics. But for right now, John is battling this group called the Gnostics. And they are a fierce enemy of apostolic truth. The Gnostics were a diverse group in many ways. They embraced various teachings that were heavily influenced by secular Greek thought and mixed up with all kinds of stuff from the pagan religions. It was a real hodgepodge of doctrine. But the Gnostics shared one main characteristic that gave them their name. The Gnostics claimed to have new revelation, spiritual knowledge or gnosis. Spiritual knowledge that was, and here's the key, it was greater than what those poor old apostles taught. It was greater revelation than what the elders had. And so the Gnostics looked down on apostolic Christians thinking, well, they're in bondage, they're inferior. And the Gnostics were constantly trying to pull Christian converts away from apostolic truth and away from the New Testament church. Paul even ended his first letter to his young son in the gospel, Timothy. He ended it by tackling this same group. And Paul emphasized that their teachings are trash. He calls them profane and vain babblings. And he says they are opposed to the church. He, he talks about their oppositions. And he says that their revelations are false. He calls it science. That's the word uh, genosis, nosco, uh, knowledge. It is science, it is knowledge that is falsely so called. And Paul says they have deviated from the truth. They have erred concerning the faith. And John feels exactly the same way that Paul does about this quite sinister group. So here's Paul's words to Timothy. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings. Don't get in to all of those trashy teachings. And, and watch out for those oppositions. That word in the Greek is actually antithesis, which we use in English. It is the polar opposite of something else. And in this case, it's the polar opposite of truth. He said, they are in opposition to truth. They have science, knowledge that is falsely so-called, which some professing, some that have followed them, Timothy, they have erred concerning the faith. So, Grace be with you, Timothy. 
Amen. And that's how he stops his epistle. He warns Timothy about this group in his final words to his young protege. You see, the Gnostics, while they thought they were so enlightened spiritually, they were really quite dangerous. The Gnostics, they divided the material world from the spiritual world. So they thought that since the material world, the physical world, and the spiritual world were divided, they could live however they wanted because they had this elite spiritual knowledge and experience. The Gnostics denied that Jesus was truly God manifested in human flesh. They taught that his death on the cross was some kind of spiritual illusion because he wasn't really a man. The Gnostics actually believed, like you'd expect from an Eastern religion perhaps, they believed that they contained divine light particles. And so since they contained divine light particles, they could indulge any fleshly lust to any extreme they wanted and not be contaminated spiritually. And the Gnostics, it got more sinister. They misrepresented and reinterpreted the Old Testament to present Jehovah as an angry, evil deity. And then they taught that Jesus came along as a contradictory New Testament God of grace and love. It was sinister. The Gnostics rejected the doctrines of sin and repentance in favor of their less restrictive, more palatable teaching that was based on enlightenment. The Gnostics discarded whole portions of scripture. In fact, one of them, Marcion, he produced a Bible. He kept only Paul's epistles and his own version of Luke's gospel. That's all he kept because he felt like he could twist Paul's epistles, no doubt, and make them say whatever he wanted. And eventually it was Marcion's heresy in assembling this little mini personal Bible of his own. It was that event that actually forced the church later on to come up with what we know as the canon, the books of Holy Scripture. The reason you have the Bible you have is because the church banded together hundreds of years ago and they put together the books that were inspired because they were getting pressure from this group called the Gnostics to throw out much of the Bible. And the Gnostics developed many misinterpretations of scripture, including a distortion of the oneness message that was in John's gospel. That's probably one of the reasons John is so ramped up. Two men called Heraclion and Ptolemaeus, they actually took John's gospel and did a commentary and explained away the oneness and distorted and twisted the beautiful gospel of John. And finally, the Gnostics, they prided themselves on their secret knowledge of the deep things of the spirit. And so the Gnostics were cut adrift from apostolic truth. They followed any persuasive personality. They followed any subjective spiritual experience. If somebody said it's over here, they went over there. If somebody said follow this guy, listen to this teacher, that's what they did. They followed all of these subjective experiences and persuasive personalities. So no wonder in his epistle, John continually uses this play on words. You see, when he says know or knowing or knoweth or knowledge, 
it's that word gnosis. It refers to the Gnostics. And so John hammers down all the time. Hereby do we know that we know him. He is slapping that Gnostic heresy and he's driving home the point that there is real Bible truth that you can know. And there is a real Bible God who defines himself. Thank you very much. He doesn't need humanity's help to define him. He defines himself in his word. And so John continually drives home this point that real spiritual knowledge does not involve how you feel. Real spiritual knowledge does not involve the persuasive, charming words of some preacher or teacher. Real spiritual knowledge, John says, always involves obeying the word of God. This is how we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. For John, to know Jesus is to love Jesus. And to love Jesus is to obey Jesus. And John just says it very plainly, the apostle of love. No matter how much you say you serve God or love God or know God, if you don't keep his commandments, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. And I'm sure you've already noticed this as I went through that long kind of tedious list. But every false doctrine of the Gnostics is being embraced in some corner of modern Christianity. There are people that have thrown out the Old Testament today. They feel like it's not relevant. That's what the Gnostics did. There are people that have thrown out the beautiful doctrine of the oneness of God. That's what the Gnostics did. There are people that follow every kind of experience that you could possibly conjure up in your imagination. That's what the Gnostics did. There's all kinds of misinterpretations of Bible doctrine today. That's what the Gnostics did. It's like Gnosticism has had a, a revival in the end of the end times. And John has no use whatsoever for this crowd. Their slogan is just forget doctrine and let's all love Jesus. John has absolutely no use for that crowd. He continues, he says, but whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby, this is how we know we are in him. He that says he abides in Christ ought himself also so to walk even as Jesus walked. John says, if you want to have a relationship with God, if you want to know with absolute certainty that you are his child, if you want God's love to be fully realized in your life, then it's very simple. Keep his word. Keep his commandments. Do what God's word says. As a pastor, it always amazes me how many Christians multitudes of Christians get frustrated over their struggles and they blame God because he supposedly hasn't kept his promises. Happens all the time. I don't know why God's forsaken me. I don't know why God didn't come through for me. I don't know why God didn't answer my prayer. Now, can I just confess this? It's mid midweek and there's only a handful of people here. Nobody would be watching online to hear this, of course. Sometimes I just like to shake them and rattle them around a little bit and say, 
you haven't even obeyed what the Bible told you to do and now you're mad and frustrated with God and you're claiming God didn't keep his promises when you didn't even know what you, you didn't even do what you already uh, were told to do by the word of God. John says, if you love him, if you say you serve him, if you say you know him, then keep his commandments, keep his word. If the Bible's already told you to do something, you know, a lady came in one time, I've told you this before, years ago. She came in one time, she said, pray for me, pastor. I'm trying to decide whether to stay with my husband or live with my boyfriend. Please pray for me. I don't need to pray about that. Not for one split second. I don't need to pray about that. And she shouldn't have had to either. If you talk about being a follower of Jesus, then you should walk the way Jesus walked. Now, we're chuckling a second ago, but that has huge implications for everybody here tonight in every area of life. Because if we are going to walk like Jesus walked, that means it's going to affect how we love and serve and give and forgive. We're supposed to do those things like Jesus did. Jesus taught his disciples what it meant to abide in him. And John recorded that in his gospel in John chapter 15. You can read it when you get home if you like. In that chapter, John 15, in the gospel of John, Jesus taught his disciples. He used the illustration of a vine and branches. Just as every branch in that vine gets its life by remaining connected to the vine, we retain and we receive spiritual life only if we maintain our fellowship with him. To abide in Christ means to depend completely on Jesus for what we need. It is a living relationship. It is a give and take relationship. It is an everyday relationship. Only if we have that kind of relationship can we follow Jesus' example and walk as he walked. And Paul expresses what that experience looks like when he writes to the Galatians. He said, I am crucified with Christ. You're looking at a dead man. I'm crucified with Christ. My old flesh, my old life was crucified 2,000 years ago on the cross. Nevertheless, I live. I'm still here. I'm still walking around and talking to you. Yet, it's not me, but it is Christ that lives within me. It's not me that you're dealing with. It's Jesus' impact on my life that you're dealing with. The reason I can forgive you is that he taught me what forgiveness means when he forgave me. The reason I can serve you is I serve a God who said that he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So you're not just dealing with me. You're dealing with Christ who lives in me, the life which I now live in the flesh, I'm living by the faith of the Son of God because he loved me and he gave himself for me. That's what this life that John is talking about looks like. I'm still living, but really my old man is dead and it's Jesus living through me. 
Boy, if we had a good dose of that, wouldn't we solve a whole lot of problems in everywhere, in society, in churches, in relationships, in families, in friendships, because it's Christ living in us. John said, brethren, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but I'm writing an old commandment. And you've had this since the beginning. The old commandment is the word. Somebody say the word. It's the word which you have heard from the beginning. John said, I'm not writing a new commandment to you. Jesus covered this years ago when he walked on the earth. The old commandment is the word. It is the logos that I told you about. But if you will obey his word, his commandments, then the living word, the Logos, Jesus Christ, he will become new in you. His light will transform you and it'll push the darkness out of your life. And then he just said, I'm not writing a new commandment. Now he says, again, a new commandment I write unto you. Which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is past, the true light now shineth. He said, the commandment is actually old, but if you'll embrace it, if you'll live it, it will become new in you. That old commandment that we have from Jesus, that word that was made flesh and he gave us his will when he talked to us and taught us, if you'll allow that to be in you, if you'll allow that to impact you, I'm not giving you a new commandment. Jesus taught us this 60 years ago, but I'm giving you an old commandment that can become new and give you new life if you let it become real in you. And now John narrows his focus. He's been talking about keep his commandments. He's been talking about all the commandments of God. Now he's gonna narrow his focus down to one commandment. And this is where John gets his nickname. He's going to narrow it all down to one commandment. And that commandment is love. John is the apostle of love. If we really love God, John says, if you really love God, you will love his commandments and you will love his family, God's family, and you will not love the world. If you really love God, you will love God's commandments, you will love God's family, and you will not love the world. A genuine love for God will cause us to do those three things without even really thinking about it. We don't have to be pushed or forced or shamed or, or guilted or nagged. We just do it automatically because when we really love God, we automatically love his commandments. When we really love God, we automatically love his family. And when we really love God, we automatically don't love the world. John said, he that says he's in the light and he hates his brother, he's in darkness. I don't care how spiritual he pretends to be. If he hates his brother, he's in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there's no occasion of stumbling in him. But somebody that hates their brother, he's in darkness he walks in darkness. He doesn't even know where he's going. He's just fumbling around and groping around because the darkness hath blinded his eyes. John will return to that theme multiple times in this letter. How can we love a God that we can't see if we don't even love our brother, God's child, our sister, God's child, that we can see? If you can't love your brother and your sister, how can you claim you love a God, their God, your God? You can't see God, but you can see them. 
How can you claim to love a God who's invisible when you can't love your siblings in the family of God who are very visible? John says, if you love your brother, you're living in the light. You won't stumble. You won't become a stumbling block to somebody else either. But if you don't love your brother, you're walking in darkness. And even more, you're spiritually blind. So you are headed for a disastrous fall. The command for us to love one another is repeated at least a dozen times in the New Testament. And Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 13 that without love, we are nothing. The greatest of these is love. And so we've got to keep this in mind. This is why John is nicknamed the apostle of love because he said, you can't love God who you can't see if you don't love your brother that you can see. Now, next, John does something unique. He, he commends three groups in the church, three groups, and he repeats himself two times just to emphasize it. He wants us to get this. He's not addressing specific age groups which is what many people think is happening here. But he's actually encouraging people that are not necessarily different ages, but they're at different stages of spiritual maturity. John's gonna talk about little children and fathers and young men. And he's gonna say something to those three groups and he's gonna repeat it twice. Little children, fathers, and young men. We would say new believers, elders, and saints. The new believers have just begun to learn the basics of serving God. The elders, they've known God for a long time, and they're a witness of God's faithfulness. And then all the rest of the saints, what he calls the young men, they're actively engaged right now. They're not new believers and they're not elders. They're just serving God. They're in the trenches. They're actively battling the enemy right now. Here's what he says. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. That's one of the most important things you gotta learn when you're a new baby in Christ is that my sins are forgiven. I don't live like I used to live. I don't walk like I used to walk. My sins are forgiven. It's precious. He said, but I write unto you fathers for a different reason. I write unto you, you elders, because you've known him that is from the beginning. You've been around a long time. And I write unto you, young men, all the rest of you saints, because you have overcome the wicked one. Do you know how a church becomes strong and stays strong and gets stronger? It's when individual Christians in that church become strong and stay strong and get stronger. So your personal battles against the enemy are far from insignificant because we are a collection of people having a spiritual experience, an experience with God and a negative experience with the devil and how you fight that battle and who wins that battle every day. That impacts the church that you are part of. It doesn't do us much good if we all cripple in here on Sunday and everybody's been defeated by the devil and we're all racked with guilt and shame and condemnation. But if the saints of God come to church from a personal prayer meeting, from a personal altar, from a personal knowledge of the word, then you just feel the power level and the anointing level rise in a local church. So he said, I write unto you, young men, 
because you're engaged in the battle. You've overcome the wicked one. And just in case you didn't catch it, he backs right up and says it all again. I write unto you little children because you've known the Father. You're just beginning in your knowledge. You're just starting this journey. You're just taking your first step. And that's all we want you to concentrate on. You don't have to figure out the heights and the depths of theology yet. You just need to get yourself plugged in to your local church and serve God and be faithful and then watch God work in your life. Little children, new believers. And I've written unto you fathers, because you've known him that is from the beginning. You've been around for a while. You are a witness to all of the rest of us that God is faithful and that we're gonna make it because some of you have walked through deep, dark, lonely valleys and because you came out the other side, some younger Christian can look at you and say, if they can do it, if they can make it, if they can keep their victory and their testimony, I can do the very same thing. And then he says, I've written unto you, young men, because you're strong. You are not weak. You are mighty through God. You are strong. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked ones. What he's saying is all the rest of you saints that are somewhere in the middle between a little child and, and a father, between a new convert and an elder, all of the rest of you, you stay in the word and you keep on fighting and you be strong because the fate and the future of the local church, even the church around the world, upon faithful saints. Now, these are the positive outcomes when we love God. These are the positive outcomes. Number one, we'll love his commandments. And number two, we will love his family. But there's also what I would call a negative, an opposite outcome when we love God. We love God's commandments and we love God's family, but we do not love the world. This is a very famous scripture. Many people know it off by heart. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, you can mark it down. The love of the Father is not in him. Most of the time when the New Testament talks about the world, it's the Greek word cosmos, and it refers to Satan's invisible spiritual system, a system that opposes God's kingdom, righteousness, and holiness. It's a system that is an enemy to every individual Christian. It's the world. It's not talking about the planet. It's not talking about the people on the planet. It's an invisible spiritual system. It's much like we would say the world of sports. We're not talking about a different country or a different planet. We're talking about a system, the world of politics, the world of religion. We're talking about systems when we say that. Well, the world, when the New Testament uses that word, it's talking about an invisible spiritual system. Now, Jesus called Satan the prince of this world in John 12. And he called unsaved people the children of this world in Luke 16. As Christians, every one of us, we live in a physical world. And we love the people of this world, our family, our friends, our neighbors. But we fight the system 
of this world because the system of this world wars against your spiritual life. It is your arch enemy, no matter how politically correct it may seem, no matter how kind and nice it may be perceived, the system of this world wars fiercely and viciously and unendingly against your spiritual life. The worldliness is not just a matter of activity. Sometimes people are around the Pentecostal church in particular long enough to think that worldliness is when you do certain activities. That's worldliness. Oh, she's worldly, he's worldly, they're worldly. Let me tell you, worldliness is not only a matter of activity. Worldliness is a matter of attitude. You can stay away from every questionable behavior. You can distance yourself from every questionable activity. But still in your heart, you can be fascinated with the system of the world. But to the extent that you love worldly things, you lose, you damage, you hurt the love of the Father that wants to live in your heart. John said, don't love the world. Don't love the things that are in the world. Because if you love the world, you don't have to be doing something. You can have an attitude of fascination with the things of the world in your heart. If you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. That's how strong John feels about it. And that's why John gives us a command. Love not the world. And what are these things that are in the world? Well, good, good question. John answers that next. For all that is in the world, here we go. Three things, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Those are the things that are in the world and they are not of the father, they are of the world. Now this is, a fascinating study sometime when you've got time. These are the same three temptations that Adam and Eve faced in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. And when Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when they were faced by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, they lost the battle. They failed. But these same three temptations were faced by Jesus when he spent 40 days in the wilderness in Luke 4. He faced also the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. But this time, Jesus won that battle. And if Jesus lives in you, you can win that battle too every day of your life. So how do we overcome these temptations? If these are the three things that are in the world and they're dangerous to our spiritual life and if we have them in our heart, the love of the Father's not in us, we disconnect from God and God won't coexist with sin. If, if it's that important, how do we overcome these temptations? And the answer is, you overcome these temptations the way that Jesus overcame these temptations. I'm glad that when the devil faced Jesus in the wilderness and he tempted him, I'm so thrilled that Jesus didn't do what he could have done. He was God manifest in flesh. He could have called a bolt of lightning down from the heavens and said, 
And that's the end of the devil. He's just a quivering pile of jello on the desert sand. But Jesus didn't defeat the devil by accessing his divine power in the heavens. Do you know how Jesus beat the devil? He used the same techniques. He used the same strategy that he expects you to use. You see, you battle the lust of the flesh when you submit your body to the word of God. What do we mean by that? The lust of the flesh is when you try to satisfy physical appetites in sinful ways. That's the lust of the flesh. The appetite is not wrong, but you try to satisfy the appetite by disobeying the word of God. That's a lust of the flesh. And the way you beat the lust of the flesh is you submit your body to the word of God. In other words, you unquestionably, you obey his commandments. You just embrace the word. And when you obey God's commandments, maybe you don't fully understand them, but you just say, if it's in the word and God says, do it, I'm gonna do it. That's how you beat the lust of the flesh. When, when the devil tempted Jesus, take these stones, you're hungry, Jesus. Now the appetite of hunger wasn't wrong, but, but the devil wanted Jesus to break this 40 day fast that he was on. So he was tempting him. The appetite wasn't wrong, but to, to break that fast prematurely, that would have been wrong. And so the devil, what he, what he did was he tempted Jesus to satisfy a legitimate appetite in an illegitimate way. That's the lust of the flesh. And here's Jesus' answer. It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. I'm not living by the appetites of my flesh. I live by the commandments of the word of God. That's how you beat, that's how you combat the lust of the flesh. You submit your body to the word of God. Then the next temptation Jesus faces is the lust of the eyes. And the lust of the eyes is when you desire pleasures that, that gratify your ego or, or they gratify your imagination. This could be anything from uh, some, uh, like what the devil did with Jesus. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. You can have this if you just bow down to me. You can have this if you just serve me. Nobody will know. It could be anything from that some grandiose ego temptation, or it could be something like a secret perverted imagination, like pornography. That is the lust of the eyes. It's desiring pleasures that gratify your imagination. And the way you battle the lust of the eyes is by submitting your mind to the worship of God. You consistently dwell in his presence. You're never far from a moment when you can just maybe shed a tear or lift a hand or call his name or pray out loud. You're never far from that moment of worship. Worship, Pentecostal people, worship is not when we get here and we all get together and we strike up the band and we all sing and we all lift our hands in chorus and that is worship. No, worship is your life. Worship is every day. Worship is when you daily get in the presence of God and then when we finally get together. There's a power when we're all together because guess what, devil? We've been worshiping God every day this week all by ourselves. 
I'm not saying you need to, you know, learn how to play the keyboard and learn how to lead yourself in songs and take prayer requests from yourselves and preach a sermon to yourself. That's not worship. That's how we do it when the church gets together. You need a life of worship. You need a relationship of worship every day. You see, when the devil tempted Jesus by showing him all the kingdoms of the world, he said this, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. That's what Jesus said. I resist the temptation to go there in my imagination by worshiping only the Lord God. And finally, Jesus faced down the temptation of the pride of life. The pride of life is when you reject God through self-sufficiency, or when you reject God by what I would call presumptuous sin. You just think, I'll just sin, God has to forgive me. It's in the Bible. I'll just sin, God's merciful, it's in the Bible. I'll just sin, God has grace toward me, it's in the Bible. That's presumptuous sin. Like the devil said to Jesus, cast yourself down from the temple. You cast yourself over this pinnacle and the Bible says, he twisted the word of God, that the Lord, uh, the angels will bear you up lest you cast your foot against a stone. So you don't have anything to worry about, Jesus. You can presume on God's mercy. You can presume on your father's grace. You can presume on that and you can sin. That is the pride of life. When you almost become your own God, And you battle the pride of life by submitting your spirit to the will of God. How does a human being submit their spirit to the will of God? There's only one way. You have to pray in the spirit. You have to yield to the spirit. And you have to battle in the spirit. Sometimes when we all get praying together every once in a while, we're, and by the way, we're never gonna shut this down. You'll hear an intercessor's voice kind of cut through the prayer meeting. You'll hear an intercessor's voice raised to maybe a higher or more intense pitch and what they're doing is they're going to war in the spirit that is how you battle the pride of life that would like us to be like the world and we all create God in our own image and we're all the our own God over our own life and nobody can tell us what to do but when you submit your spirit to the will of God that conquers the pride of life Jesus said when the devil tempted him to presume on God He said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I'm gonna submit my will to my Father's will. Now, if you were to diagram out what I just said, and I love charts and diagrams, I just got a little screen here today, so here in the building it may be a little difficult to see. But if you were to diagram this threefold battle in chart form, it would look like this. John wrote to us about the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve faced those three battles. The devil said, you need to take the fruit of this tree. It's good for food, that's the lust of the flesh. It's pleasant to the eyes, that's obvious. And it's desired to make one wise, that's the pride of life. The devil tempted Adam and Eve with these same three temptations. And then in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted when the devil said, make this stone into bread, the lust of the flesh. All this power, I'll give you all these kingdoms. That's the lust of the eyes. And cast yourself down. God will look after it. That's the pride of life. So that's 
how it parallels in the word of God if you were to diagram it as a chart. Now let me show you, you, your life, if I was to put that in a chart. John wrote about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And those three things to the Christians are the sins of the body, the sins of the mind, that's the lust of the eyes, what you see in your imagination, and the sins of the spirit, the pride of life. And your strategy to conquer these things, and you've got to conquer them, because if you love the things of the world, and these are the things that are in the world, if you love these things, the love of the Father is not in you. He won't sit down beside, he won't fellowship with, he won't coexist with sin. So you've got to submit to the word of God to conquer the sins of the body. Yeah, but I want it. Yes, but I desire it. But if you'll submit to the commandments of God, I promise you there's a reward on the back end of submitting to the word of God that you can't see right now. The lust of the eyes. If you're gonna conquer that, you've gotta to submit to the worship of God. That's how you fill your mind with worship to God instead of all kinds of imaginations. If you feel the devil pulling your mind off track, if you feel the devil pulling your mind towards sin, that is the moment when you need to stop up, sit down, stand up, and just have yourself a little worship service all by your little old self and say, that's not me, that's the old me, that's that's not what I want to do. That's what my flesh wants to do. That's where my mind wants to go. And you fill your mind with worship and it conquers this lust of the eyes, the sins of the mind. And finally, the pride of life. This is all the sins of the spirit. And sins of the spirit, folks, they're treacherous. We can pick out the sins of the body because we see the consequences and we see the actions. And so we can get really good at picking out people that are struggling with sins of the body. But do you know that sins of the spirit are really, really hard to root out? Sins of the spirit are sometimes even really hard to identify. That's why you just need to submit to God's will. And the way you do that is you drag your old carcass into a prayer meeting and you yield in prayer and you submit in prayer and you just battle in prayer until you submit to the will of God. So coming to a close tonight, why is it so important to win these three battles against the world. John tells us, because everything in this world is passing away. It's decaying. Whatever you're attached to in this world, you are going to lose it. Everything in this world is passing away and everything you accomplish in this world will be insignificant in eternity. If you invest your whole life, if you invest all your money, if you invest all your time and energy and focus in the things of the world, that will pass away and it will be insignificant in eternity. And every worldly lust that the devil can get you to yield to, whether it's a lust of the body or of the mind or of the spirit, whether it's a temptation in any of those areas, if the devil can get you to yield, he can damage your relationship with God and he can diminish your reward in eternity if you even get to heaven. And so the devil's fighting constantly. And John says, it's really important that you win these three battles against these three things that are in the world because this world is passing away and all the lusts of it, 
They're going to be burned up someday. But the one who does the will of God, he abideth forever. John said, it's bad news on these three battlefronts. But if you will submit to the word of God, if you will submit to the worship of God, if you will submit to the will of God, you will abide forever with God. Nothing any of you saints do for God, no matter big or small, none of it will be lost. None of it will be insignificant in eternity. In fact, you will receive a great reward then and you will strengthen your relationship with God now. Someday, Satan and sin and lust and temptation and trials and sorrow and death, all of those things are going to be history. But you, you will just be starting to enjoy eternity if you serve God. Why is it so important to win these three battles against the world? Mostly because, John says, we're in the last days. So you need to live for God like never before. John uses a word in his letters that no other New Testament writer uses. It's the word antichrist. He uses it five times. Antichrist. Nobody else in the New Testament uses that word. We get it from John, the apostle of love. The prefix anti has two meanings. This word can mean against Christ or it can mean instead of Christ. And this world system, everything around you lies to you either by opposing Christ or by replacing Christ. It's either against Christ or it's instead of Christ. It's either opposing truth and Jesus and the church, or it's trying to replace truth and Jesus and the church in your life. The world system lies to us. Now the devil, he seduced Adam and Eve in the garden by questioning God's commandments. And John says that spirit of antichrist is already at work in the world. Long before there's a man of sin, a beast, the mark of the beast, Long before that is revealed, there's already a spirit of antichrist, a questioning, arguing spirit that is against God, that wants to replace God. That spirit is already at work in the world right now, long before the physical being called the antichrist is revealed. So John says, protect yourself, brothers and sisters, because that spirit of antichrist is treacherous and evil, and it wants to get you, and it wants to hurt you, and it wants to shut down your relationship with God. So protect yourself by loving God's commandments. That is the love revolution that the church embraces. When everybody else says, don't give me a bunch of rules, we say, bring it on, Jesus. I trust that your commandments are for my good. John said, little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, oh, we've heard that all right. We've heard every prophecy teacher and preacher and expert and some that were far from experts, we've heard all the opinions. 
And they float around Christendom and that's wonderful. I don't have any problem with you studying prophecy. You figure it out. Just don't disfellowship somebody because you came up with a different theory. It's the study of prophecy. You know, prophecy is foretelling future events. So you may think you really know it and you've really got it and you really understand it. We'll figure it all out when we get to heaven. That's when we'll know for sure what was going to happen in prophecy. John said, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Every child of God knows that. That's in the word of God. But even now, even right now, you know, you can kind of fall off to sleep because the Antichrist, he's not on the evening news. The Antichrist, we, we can't figure out who it is yet. But he said, even now, while you're living for God every day, there are many Antichrists. And this is how we know that it is the last time. How? Because that same questioning, argumentative spirit that is against God and wants to replace God, that spirit is already so active. And you've already felt that. You felt it in your life. You felt it in your home. You certainly felt it during the last 10 months while we've been negotiating this pandemic. And, and there's been so many restrictions and at the same time, we've been called upon to negotiate a worldwide dangerous pandemic. We've also had unrest and upheaval and violence like this world has seldom seen. And it's getting closer to home here in Canada, isn't it? It's no longer way across the ocean somewhere. You see, it's the spirit of the age. Even now, there are Many antichrists. The antichrist, that spirit is everywhere. It's in the education system. It's in the political system. It's in the religious system. It's everywhere in the world system. So how do you protect yourself? You love God and you love his commandments. You bury yourself in this book and if this book tells you to do it, you just say, God, I love you enough to love your commandments and I trust you enough to trust that your commandments are good for me. And that puts a shield around you in the last of the last days and the end of the end times. That's what John's writing about. The apostle of love he doesn't pull his punches. If you say you love God, you will love his commandments. You will love his family and you will not love the things of this world. So if you take your temperature spiritually and something's off and something doesn't feel right, then you know how to win those battles. You win them like Jesus won them. You submit your body to the word, to the commandments of God. You submit your mind in worship to God. You put him first. You exalt him over every kind of imagination or dream or egomania trip that you might go on. You exalt him in worship until you push all kinds of sin and all kinds of junk out of your mind. And you submit your spirit to the will of God. You may need to agonize over it. You may need to pray repeatedly over it. But you find the will of God. You do the will of God. You submit to the word of God. And you win those battles over those three temptations that are in the world. They've been dealing with us. They've been hurting us. They've been trying to overcome us since the Garden of Eden. But Jesus showed us the way out. And John said, don't love that world. Because if you love that, the love of the Father's not in you. So if there's a fascination with the things of the world, 
in the lusts of the flesh, in the lusts of the eyes, in the pride of life, if there's a fascination with the world in you, you need to begin submitting yourself. Tell Jesus, I need help because you gotta overcome that. It is the last days and the spirit of Antichrist is everywhere. It's a treacherous time. But here's what the Bible says about treacherous times. And the people who know their God will be strong and do exploits. And that's what God is counting on for his church to be and to do. I appreciate you so much listening to this Bible lesson tonight. But right now, I'd like you to lift up your hands and lift up your voice with me. And I'd like to pray over you before we just kind of get up and turn off the internet and, and go on with, about our night. Would you just join me? Would you lift up your voice? Let's begin by worshiping God. Let's begin by submitting our mind to the worship of God. Let's begin by just filling our mind with his praise. Would you lift up your voice right now? Oh, Jesus, I worship you. You are everything to me. You are life and breath and strength to me. Everything that is good in me comes from you. Jesus, everything that is righteous or holy in me, it comes from you. It is not me. It is you living through me. And I worship you tonight, Jesus, because you've made a way. And God, I pray for your people. I pray for people in this room and I pray for most of our folks watching online. I pray, Jesus, that you would fortify and strengthen your people to do battle. We don't like battle. We like ease. We don't like war. We like relaxing. But Jesus, it's the last of the last days and we can feel the tension rising in the world. We can feel the stress of the end times and we're getting dragged into it. We didn't want to be here. We didn't desire a pandemic. We didn't desire a world filled with violence. We're dragged into it against our will. But Jesus, since we're here, we're going to stand. Since we're here, we're going to live for you. Since we're here, we're going to pray. Since we're here, we're going to fight against the devil and his world system. Jesus, strengthen your people, not just for battles as a church family. Those are relatively easy when we're all together. But in this time when we're distanced, in this time when we're restricted, God, we need to win the battle in our mind. We need to win the battle with fleshly lusts. We need to win the battle in our spirit. We need to win the battle in our homes. So Jesus, I pray that the strength of the Lord and that understanding from the word would overtake your people and fortify them for whatever battle it is that they are facing. I speak this in the name of Jesus and I command it to be so among the people of God that I have the honor of pastoring. Jesus, let strength arise. Jesus, let healing and restoration arise. Jesus, let understanding arise in the people of God. Let them, let this church be strong and do exploits for the name of the Lord in the last of the last days. 
I pray it in Jesus' name. And if you would let your worship be your loud amen tonight, lift up a praise to the Lord in this sanctuary so they can hear you online. Lift up a praise to the Lord in this church house tonight. Jesus is with us. Jesus is for us. Jesus is in us. And he is going to direct us. Araboko Ramahasi. Ribolodo Shesababakoya. Riboloto Shesababakyotabaha. I wish somebody would take one minute and just pray in the spirit by praying in that Holy Ghost given language that God invested in you. Just pray in the spirit. That's how you submit your spirit to the will of God. You pray in the spirit. You war in the spirit. You speak in the spirit. <laughs> 